This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast, powered by BetMGM. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy, how you doing? What's new? I'm doing pretty good. Just still hanging out at home, catching up on Succession. No spoilers. Oh, uh, man. So you didn't see this up. week's? This week's was epic. Yeah, so you were ramping up because we like to binge. So we've started watching the beginning of season three in order to meet it at its rightful conclusion when it airs. Okay, so I'm not going to Nothing. give anything away other than that I watched. I, I, I watched, but I didn't watch this week because I had to hide behind. I literally hid behind a blanket for certain. Amazing. The cringe level was off the charts in Amazing. the best possible way, so it was fantastic. So the news cycle this week, it's, it's blowing up. We've been waiting for another surge in the old news cycle, and there are a lot of major changes made by a couple prominent franchises. We're going to start with all things Canucks. So we know, of course, on Sunday they dropped the bomb. The news was sort of, sort of leaking in a strange order, but the sequence eventually, it eventually meted out as they fired GM Jim Benning, they fired assistant GM John Weisbrot, they fired coach Travis Green, assistant coach Nolan Baumgartner. So let's start with the GM side of it first. Uh, I'm curious, it's sort of a two-part question for you. What direction do you think this new GM, whether it's Stan Smeal or someone else, needs to go with the team, and who should be the new GM? Okay, well, it's funny because in Bruce Boudreaux's debut behind the bench, the Canucks post a shutout against Los Angeles. The fans are chanting his name. It's all great times. Um, So part of me thinks that whoever takes over the Canucks you don't want major surgery and you don't want major disruption until you see what kind of Boudreaux bounce you're getting because it's a pretty talented roster as is in Vancouver. And Bruce Boudreaux, he has turned around franchises pretty quickly in the past. So if, if he can bring those good vibes and get everybody playing you know, good up-tempo hockey, then you know you don't need to do a lot. But what I would say is that you know, long-term... Obviously, the Canucks have some sort of cap pressure that they need to alleviate in, in order to be a, a serious contender. And, you know, Jim Benning has left some, some messes. You got that huge Oliver ekman Larson contract. You know, you have a smaller but still significant Tyler Myers contract. You know, what does your blue line look like moving forward? Is there any way you can ditch that money on somebody else without having to subtract, you know, a lot of assets from your own roster. I think that's the big challenge uh, for whoever takes over is massaging the roster and getting it into a better place um, and, and still knowing that you don't have a ton of work to do, assuming Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser get back on track, you continue to see growth from Quinn Hughes, that sort of thing. Because you have a pretty good base to work with, with those guys and Thatcher Demko and Nett. It's a pretty good foundation, along with Bo Horvat and JT Miller. For sure. And it's interesting, I was sort of, because I was writing about Bruce Boudreaux, we'll get into Gabby a little bit more in a sec, but... Um, you know, I was noting that there are 11 first-round talents on the Canucks right now. Five of them are drafted in-house, so that's Horvat, Besser, Patterson, Hughes, Pud Colson. Then you have J.T. Miller, Tanner Pearson, Oliver ekman Larson, Tyler Myers. You have Luke Shen. You have Jason Dickinson. Stanley Cup winner Luke Shen. Yeah, and I mean, you could count Brandon Sutter, I guess, but he's sort of you know, not really involved, in the, not in the mix right now. But the point being, and then you also add in Thatcher Demko and Niels Hoglander, the pieces are there, like you were implying. Mm-hmm. So it's too early to 
get really aggressive manipulating the pieces until you see, like you said, what the effect is going to be with Bruce Boudreau. And also, looking at the roster, it's not a team, even though Francesco Aquilini, the governor of the team, said he's open to a possible possibility of a rebuild, depending on what the GM is going to decide, it's not a team that's really built to be nuked and blown up quickly yeah. because there aren't many really prominent expiring contracts other than Yaroslav Halak. Halak, pending UFA, perfect back of a goalie for a contender. If the Canucks can't get back into a playoff position, that's an easy sell at the deadline, sure. But other than that, most of the main pieces, they still have term left on their deals. Brock Besser is going to be an RFA, but again, that's a deal you don't have to force during the season. So you're sort of better off just seeing what happens, seeing how the pieces fall, seeing if you get that surge under Boudreau. But if we're looking at possible candidates, I know you were reporting yesterday there was Mark Bergerman, his name was out there. It'll be interesting to see whether you stick with Stan Smeal. Bergerman, to me, it's interesting because if you look at the profile of how he behaved as Montreal's GM, it's very Jim Benning-like. It's sort of believing the team is a contender even if the outside factors or pundits didn't believe so and just continuing to put the foot on the gas, sign a lot of players to expensive contracts. So Bringing in Bergevin, in my opinion, is like bringing in another Benning, just in terms of his style. I don't know if that's actually the fit you want. You could go more progressive, like some someone like an Eric Tulski, who's done very well in Carolina. He's ascended from first like freelance contractor, pretty much, all the way to assistant GM. And you could go PR friendly. You could go Roberto Luongo if you wanted to yep. build a new brain trust. Basically, the 2011 Canucks, Luongo and the Sedins. Right. That's a possibility too. But where is your head right now? Before we get to Boudreau, mm. what do you think is the possibility in terms of the leading candidate to be the next GM? Well, a name that I'm hearing right now that sort of the insiders are excited about in the industry is Paul Karpelka. Uh, he's the assistant GM with the Florida Panthers right now. He uh, did a couple of years with the Carolina Hurricanes before that and did very well. And you know, prior to that, he was a, a prominent player agent uh, with Bobby Orr's agency, helped build that up. Uh, you know, he has a legal background and he's great with contracts and the CBA. So, you know, he he sort of fills a lot of buckets there. And obviously, you look at the Florida Panthers. They've been one of the best teams in the league this year. So, you know, this is a guy that's really kind of an up-and-comer who has sort of put his stamp on a couple of organizations already. And, you know, maybe he's the guy that, you know, he's your first-time GM that, you know, he's got that steady hand. He's got that clear head. Um, you know, I, I think the appeal with Bergevin was how he relates to players and motivates them. Um, mm -hmm. But, you, you know, you do have Bruce Boudreau now as the coach, and he's fantastic with players. So maybe you don't uh, have to go that route. Um, I, I think that was where Vancouver was interested uh, in terms of Bergevin. But with Kropelka, you know, I, I see a guy that is really well respected in the industry and is, is probably ready for that next step. So that's the sort of buzzed about name that I'm hearing today. It's interesting too, Karpelka, the profile is almost identical to Bill Zito's, right? Law background, True. was an agent, yeah. assistant GM, very respected, sort of being on both sides of the coin in terms of negotiations and look what Bill Zito is doing in Florida. Exactly. So if you want to get a carbon copy there, it makes a lot of sense. So Boudreaux, you've touched a little bit on his appeal and I have a bunch of thoughts too because I wrote about it yesterday, but what are you looking for in this first juncture, this first run, season, whatever you want to call it, Boudreaux coming in part way? What are you expecting him to do to this team? Well, I just want to see the Canucks kind of have fun again. Uh, I've watched a lot of Vancouver this year. And, you know, when you look at them on paper, you say, yeah, that's a pretty decent team. And then they come out and they were always kind of flat. And it was very sort of curious. So that's what made the initial effort against the Kings so nice to see is that the Canucks were actually... 
they were out there doing it. You know, they were showing their potential. And I, I think that's the key to Bruce Boudreau is unlocking those guys. And, you know, like we said, they've got some really talented players there. And players that we've seen have excellent performances before, Pedersen and Besser being the two most prominent that really needed to get going uh, because obviously JT Miller was already having a very good season. So I, I think that's Boudreaux's gift. And I think that's what we'll be looking to see for the rest of this year is how quickly he can turn around the Canucks and frankly, how far can he take them? Can this be a playoff team? I mean, that's a weird division they're in and they've got a lot of ground to make up. Having said that, you know, there, there are avenues where Vancouver could get hot and, and maybe sneak into a playoff spot. Yes, it's true, especially Calgary and Edmonton looking pretty solid, but everything after that, you know, Vegas has had a strange season and they're mm-hmm. still not fully healthy, so you never know what could happen in that three spot. And it's interesting with, with Boudreaux, you know, the fun factor, I think it's very real. It's not just an idea. Uh, I've been talking to people kind of close to that situation around the team, and it sounds like the players are absolutely thrilled with the idea of Boudreaux coming in because of the fact that hockey is going to be fun again. I think that was one term that was used uh, when I was talking to someone. Uh, and you look at the pattern of Boudreaux, and like you said, coming in midseason, what can he do? That's sort of his MO. He is a turnaround artist. And we know, he, you know he's only the furthest he's ever been in the playoffs is Game 7 of the Western Conference Final. He has the reputation of not always going far. But if we're looking at just getting a team back on the right track, he's one of the best ever. He's got the third highest points percentage in NHL history of coaches with at least 500 games. Only Scotty Bowman and John Cooper are ahead of him. And if you look at his coaching pattern, it feels like he's been around forever. He's only coached three teams in the NHL. So it's not like he's... I don't think it's fair to put him in the in the bucket of retread. Mm. It's not like he's been just bouncing around 10 teams in his career. He took over the Capitals 07-08. Their record was 6-14-1. They went 37-17-7 the rest of the way. Then they went on to be a powerhouse, President's Trophies, so on and so on. The, the Anaheim Ducks, 7-13-4. They went 27-23-8 the rest of the way. Then they won four straight division titles under Boudreaux. And then the Minnesota Wild, they had an 87-point team. Then the first year under Boudreaux, full season, 106 points, franchise record. And that season, I wrote about this yesterday, I talked to a lot of the Wilds players because I did a profile on Boudreaux, that was 2016-17. And they really talked about how he was able to unlock their potential, find the good in them, find what they did best and use that. And the main case study, it was, you know, Eric Stahl, people thought he was finished. He had 28 goal, 42 goal seasons under Boudreaux in his 30s because Boudreaux met with him before the season and said, no, I think you can still do this. He learned how to use Michael Granlund, who had his, or Mikhail Granlund, had his best seasons under Boudreaux. And there's a pattern, whether it's Mike Green, Ryan Getzlaff, Alexander Semin, guys had their best seasons under Bruce Boudreaux, and I don't think it's coincidence because he knows how to find the potential. And now you're giving him a team that is loaded with potential, has tons of real skill, the most skill he's had to work with since those Capitals teams in the early 2000s. And I'm very excited to see what he, what he can get out of players like Hughes, especially Patterson. I think you're going to see Patterson get back on the path to being a superstar under Boudreaux, and I'm not surprised at all that they won their first game. It's what he does. He brings the positivity. So that's just one major change. Of course, the Philadelphia Flyers also making major changes this week. Alavigno is out. Mike Yo is in on an interim basis. We'll see if that's going to stick. It sounds like it's a true interim. Yeah. It's not going to be a Craig Brubay type of situation, but you never know. So who do you think right now is the best fit to replace Vigneault in Philly? Well, I, I'm going to call this a 
an off-season move. Uh, I, I just feel the Flyers, you know, that's a real tough division. This might be a bit of a write-off already. Uh, but Yo is the kind of sort of caretaker coach that can at least, you know, take them through and, and be respectable and keep them competitive. But, you know, I, I'd like to see Philadelphia go in a totally different direction in the offseason. And the name that I've kind of been banging the drum for for a couple of years now is Scott Sandlin from the University of Minnesota Duluth. Um, you know, championships uh, all over the place with the Bulldogs. He's a great defensive coach, great structure, you know. And, and you know, that's a team that they didn't necessarily get like the top end recruits. These were players that needed time and needed to be molded before they became great pros. And, you know, he's had a pretty good track record uh, in that regard. You know, Scott Perunovich being uh, one of the most prominent, uh, the, the St. Louis Blues prospect tweener. You know, I'm not sure where he is this very second. Um, but, you know, Sandlin and, you know, it is hard to leave college hockey because you're growing programs. And, you know, you have that sort of legacy and it's, you know, it's new kids every year and there's new challenges. But, you know, that's the kind of coach that I could see going into Philly, sort of cleaning up some of the structure and the problems they've been having. And, and you know, I, I think we're really at a interesting juncture with the Flyers where, you know, how long is Claude Giroux going to be on this team, you know? Um, you know, when does Travis Konechny get back on track? You know, when does it become like a Joel Farabee driven team? You know, what's the timeline on all mm -hmm. these things? You know, what's Carter Hart's ceiling in terms of consistency? So many questions. I feel like this is a time where maybe you do something daring and you bring in a new mind that can maybe sort of spark something. And I, I think Scott Sandlin could be that guy if he was interested in the job. Okay, I'm gonna the, the the counterpoint I'm gonna make is maybe the Flyers are gonna be turned off by going through the college ranks after Dave Haxtell was kind Possibly. of a flop. That's just the counterpoint. Uh, and it's funny, I'm not one to promote the retreads, but I see some potential retreads that could fit. It depends on what you're looking for. If you're mm -hmm. Chuck Fletcher, if you were trying to jumpstart this team immediately and you think you can get this team back in the hunt and you think you have the horses, you could bring in John Tortorella, which would be the most on the nose person in Philadelphia since. Angry Ron Hextall, I guess. Yeah. Um, he would fit the Flyer brand, and teams tend to play really good defensive hockey under Tortorella. Teams tend to get the most out of their goaltenders under Tortorella because he does a good job creating systems that really help the goaltender and reduce the quality of chances, whether it was Henrik Lundqvist, whether it was Merzlikens and Corpusalo, who did their best work with Tortorella in Columbus. The list goes on. So if you want to bring in that lunch pail mentality, but the thing is, the Flyer personnel, they have a reputation of being this tough team. But if you look at who they actually have there right now, yes, Kevin Hayes was there under Tortorella. I believe they overlapped in New York. But guys like Ryan Ellis when he's healthy, Claude Giroux, Konechny. Yes, you have your Scott Lawton, your lunch pail types. But overall, this group, I wouldn't say it's a big, mean, broad street bullies type team. Yeah. I don't know 100% that Tortorella is the fit. If you're thinking more long term, obviously Rick Tockett is going to be linked to them. He's sort of Flyers royalty. He's only had one opportunity so far in the NHL. It's only a matter of time before he gets another one. He also can create a team that plays a disciplined kind of uh, conservative system that could help Philly, who's been the worst defensive team in the NHL this year. So you could bring in Rick Tockett. But to me, he's a bit more of a long term solution. Uh, I don't think he's going to, because he's more of a calm communicator type. His, his reputation as being a great communicator, I don't think he's going to go in and take this team by the horns and 
change them in one season. But mm. if you're looking for a, a fix that's gradual, he's going to be sort of the anti-Vignon because the reports out of Philly was that there were major communication problems, that he wasn't even always communicating directly with the team. He was going through Yo, things like that. So there was sort of an arm's length relationship that created a problem. Tockett's going to come in, I think, and be more of a communicator so I could see him fitting. But again, that's more if you're thinking longer term. If you really just want to get crazy with it, I guess you could bring in Torts. But Torts, it's too on the nose, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So Robin Lehner, he's always in the news because he's the most outspoken player in the NHL. We love that about him. He recently spoke out this week saying he is pulled out of Olympic consideration. He surely would have been one of the goaltenders for Team Sweden between him and Jacob Markstrom to be the starter, but he would have been there, I'm sure. He's out uh, due to concerns about the quarantine period because if you do test positive, you could be there for weeks in China, which could cost you time time with your family and also chunks of your NHL season, depending on how long you have to stay there. He was too worried about it. So my question is, do you expect other players to follow suit? I think we could see that for sure. And, you know, looking at the standings, I would say anybody that plays for a Western Conference team that's not maybe like Edmonton and Calgary because they're pretty far entrenched at the, the top of that division. But there's so many teams that could be playoff teams in the West right now in both divisions that I would be very worried that I could cost my team a playoff spot, even if they were, you know, a, a pretty decent contender. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we – if uh, we see more players opting out because, you know, there's the risk-reward factor there. And, you know, if a player's won a gold medal before, maybe they say, well, you know, I'd rather win a Stanley Cup. Um, you know, if they haven't won it before, maybe that plays into it. Also, you know, I wonder, depending on what country you play for, if, if you're playing for a country that doesn't really have a chance at a medal, maybe that weighs into your decision. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can never discount national pride when it comes to these tournaments. But I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if we don't see more players. Yeah, especially because I think Leonard is growing into a leadership role, whereas he used to be, I think, perceived as more of a rebel. I think players are sort of understanding that he says the things that they often want to say. And if you look at some of his recent career pattern, right, he was the first prominent active player to be open about his mental health. And I wonder if we get what we've seen from Carey Price this year or Jonathan Drouin if Lanner didn't walk so they could run, right? So he's established himself, I think, as someone who's now a leader of the pack. Even when Ryan Reeves took a knee, Lanner was the first white player to do it with him. I know Tyler Sagan and Jason Dickinson, but Lanner being his own teammate, he took a knee a week or two later. It was not, not too far along, not too far after. All the players are boycotting, and we see the, the league shut down for a couple of days. And again, I think Lanner is one of the people driving the bus there. So now I think we have to pay more attention when Lanner speaks. I think it's more likely that other players are listening to what he's saying because he's often right about what he's saying. And with the Omicron variant, I know there's talk that it's not as deadly as the Delta variant of COVID-19, but it's reportedly more contagious. So, and what matters in this context is just having it. It's not how bad you have it. What Lanner's talking about is just having it, testing positive, and just being stuck. Mm -hmm. So... I do think it's likely we'll see some players follow suit, especially I think if your team is way out of it too, like a team that has no chance to make the playoffs, then I think those players are more likely to go because there's, right. there's less to lose by being stuck. Right. Right. But if you're on a contending team, which even though Vegas has had a strange season, they still fashion themselves contenders totally. and you're starting goaltender. I don't think you want to miss any time. Right. So I don't think Lander will be the last. And we've said before on the show that we're still pretty skeptical that the league's going to go at all, but we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. So there was quite the bloodbath between the Leafs and the Jets on the weekend. People were pretty fired up on the old Twitter. 
about it. Uh, we see a couple suspensions of fine as well, but I want to talk about the two suspensions, both for knee, the double kneeing suspensions. Mm-hmm. One goes to Neil Pionk, and if you're treating them all as children, he started it <laughs> because he hit Rasmus Sandin with a knee on knee. Yep. He gets two games. And at the time of recording this podcast, Spezza has an in-person hearing. The actual length of the punishment has not been doled out yet, but we know it's going to be likely it's five or more, or at least it's possible that it can be five or more if you're getting an in-person hearing. So I know there's been a lot of debate. Why is Spezza getting a bigger punishment than Pionk? I think I have a pretty good handle on it, but I want to give you the floor first. Mm. Do you think that's fair? Do you think Pionk should have been punished equally to Spezza? Do you think that the Department of Player Safety got it right? Where do you stand? You know, I, I think we're probably going to agree on this, but I, I think they got it right because you know the retaliatory nature of Spetz's hit uh, was so obvious. Just the timing, the player it was on. Um, you know, you just you, you can't telegraph it like that, uh, especially when there's cameras everywhere and replay everywhere. So I, I think that's going to be a, a huge factor, and that's why there is the in-person hearing for Spetsa. And yeah, exactly. It's it's parenting. It's like I don't care who started it. I'm gonna finish it. And mm-hmm. that means longer suspension for Spezza. Yeah, and you learn that as a kid in house league. They, they, they say the ref always is going to catch the retaliation, exactly. not the original crime. Yeah, And I know uh, one of the hallmarks of George Peros' tenure being in charge of player safety, he's really about non-hockey plays. So if you look at the two plays, Neil Pionk's play, it's dirty, it's suspendable, but it's a hockey play, right? Mm. Rasmus Sandin shooting the puck, Pionk is trying to separate him from the puck, he arrives late. And the reason why it's a suspendable offense is if you watch the replay, Pionk changes his route. He takes a little, if you watch his skates, he goes out of his way to target. Mm. And the changing of the route is, I think, what establishes the hit as dirty. If he just followed through, it's fine. But changing the route means like, okay, I'm going to try and get a piece of him here. That said, it still happened bang, bang, right when Sandin's shooting the puck. He's just, Pionk arrives a little bit late. Whereas Spezza, like you said, it's retaliatory. The only purpose of what Spezza did, it had nothing to do with the play. Mm. It was like, I'm going to knee this guy in the head or I'm just going to take him out. Right? So there's no hiding from that. Mm. It's a clear predatory act. And that's why I think it's absolutely suspendable and worth a much bigger punishment than Pionk. It's it's basically, you know, premeditated. It's not like premeditated as in Spezza thought about it the night before, but he thought about it the play before. Right. Right. It happened shortly after. I don't know how how long it was between plays but clearly there was intent there right so i think it's the right decision for him to be punished worse so we're give or take a third of the way through the nhl season now and uh, let's let's make some people angry sure let's talk about our heart trophy pick so far because no matter what we say we're going to be wrong right. we're going to be we're going to be biased toward someone or the east coast the west coast whatever you want to call it um give me your mvp so far all right so with all due respect to leon dreisaitl and Connor mcdavid i'm going to go with alex ovechkin and, uh, yeah, I, I feel you might agree with me. Uh, I mean, the season Ovi is having, the, the results Washington is getting in a, you know, a very tough division. And the separation between him and Washington's next top, next top score, uh, I believe is Evgeny Kuznetsov, is, uh, is pretty stark. So, you know, Ovi obviously driving the offense for that team. We know he's a leader, obviously, where's the captaincy. And, yeah, you know, when I look at these these trophy awards, you have to think about voters and, you know, is there going to be a vote split between Dreisaitl and McDavid? Right now, Dreisaitl has more points, but, you know, it's not a big margin whatsoever. Uh, McDavid is right there. I think they're one, two in NHL scoring. Um, And, you know, McDavid, obviously an incredibly dynamic player that you always have to have attention on. And and maybe that helps Dreisaitl. That's a debate we've been having for years. Um, you know, both of them are worthy, but I just think Ovi as a as a singular talent, 
uh, has been head and shoulders above his teammates and therefore the most valuable player uh, as adjudged by me at this point at this desk. Mm-hmm. And me as well. I'm sorry, Oilers fans. I even wrote sorry to Galaxy Brain It, um, but Ovechkin... Uh, and I know people are going to get angry. I'll get it out of the way now. I'll get the response out of the way. Oh, it's typical East Coast. You, you probably don't. You probably go to bed at 10 o'clock. You don't even get to see the games. Do you even watch any Oilers games this year? That's probably going to be the response. I just want to get it out of the way. Uh, no, I do watch Oilers games. I don't watch every Oilers game because I do have t- little kids that wake up at 5 in the morning. So, <laughs> yeah, I sometimes have to go to bed. But I don't criticize people in the West for not getting up at 4 in the morning so they can follow the hockey news cycle at 7 in the morning, right? Anyways, I'm, I'm getting off topic. I'm just kind of, I'm poking the bear, admittedly. I'm poking Hunter, the, the lynx. Yes. Yeah, the mascot. Uh, but in all honesty, of course, there's no doubting that Connor McDavid is the best hockey player on earth, the best hockey player in terms of raw talent, I think, of the last 25 years, at least. Uh, but if we're looking at the definition, I'm personally a, an awards definition purist. That's why I did vote for Taylor Hall in 2018 player judged most valuable to his team. The Washington Capitals have not had Nicholas Backstrom. They have been without Anthony Mantha for a while as well. They've been banged up. They have no business being as good as they've been this year, and I do think it's largely because Ovi has taken the team on his back. And he's not he hasn't been regular Ovi. He's shooting the puck way more. He's creating a lot more chances. He's playing a lot more like really young, early career Alex Ovechkin, mm. just really just swarming the net like he hasn't in a long time. So I do think just the fact that he's been so important, the most valuable to his team. Oilers, like you said, Drysdale and McDavid, they've both been fantastic. You could argue they're the two best players in the world on the same team. Mm-hmm. So they do, unfortunately, cancel each other out a little bit. Zach Hyman's been really valuable to that team. You have Darnell Nurse as well. So I do think if we're judging it by the way, in my opinion, we're supposed to as voters, yeah. then the most valuable player to his team has been Alex Ovechkin. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry Oilers Nation, for, for making fun of you and, and poking you. I just I like to stir the pot sometimes. It's all in good fun. Uh, let's do some listener questions now. First one is from, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce the last name. I apologize. Russ, Russ uh, Atreides, maybe? I'm going to say Atreides. Let me know, Russ, if I got it right. The New York Rangers were maligned during the summer because... Oh, Stephen, did you drop something? Okay, I thought Stephen was trying to send us a message. He just dropped something. That's it. Okay. The New York Rangers were maligned during the summer because of some of the moves they made. They're now 16-4-3 and top five in the league standings. Are they truly turning a corner in their build? Huge fan of the show, Ryan and Matt. Thanks, Russ. Hopefully I didn't do you dirty by then mispronouncing your name after you gave us some love. So uh, I'm not quite sold yet on the Rangers. I still think there's a lot of great potential there. But if you look at the underlying numbers, and this has been the hallmark of their last several years, whatever you want to call it, the Artemi Panarin era, um, they've been a below-average defensive team. They still give up a lot of chances, and they've been using Igor Shosturkin, who's been amazing, to bail them out. So if you look at things like the amount of high-danger chances they allowed, scoring chances, expected goals, they're in the bottom third-ish of the league. It's still better than they were a couple years ago, so they're going in the right direction. But to me, under the hood suggests that they're not playing as well as their record suggests. And even I remember when Shosturkin was in town uh, talking to... Gallon, and, and even the players are sort of admitting, yeah, like he, we love having him back there because he can kind of wake you up partway through a game when you're not playing that well, right? So then they know what he, what he does for them. That said, if you look at the way Chris Drury has come in and built the team, I do think that it's, it's nice that the Rangers have that standings cushion now because once they get to the playoffs, I do think that the team is structured now to be a more effective team in the playoffs mm. with guys like Barkley, Goudreau, and Ryan Reeves. So they're more balanced. Maybe they're not going to be as effective during the regular season in terms of 
driving the play. But when the officiating arguably changes in the playoffs, then maybe that Ranger team is better suited. And of mm. course, having the great goaltending. So I would say they're they're for real ish. Mm. I think they're getting bailed out by their goalie, but there's still potential. Yeah, and I, I think this is the growth that we wanted to see from the Rangers this season. And you know. Obviously, a lot of credit goes to Gerard Gallant and what he's been able to do with this roster. And as you mentioned, Shesterkin. And, and, you know, it's going to be an interesting sort of next sort of week or two where, you know, obviously Shesterkin is on the shelf right now. So how do the Rangers do with their star goaltender Mm -hmm. on the sideline? I think that's going to be a great acid test for New York. And, you know, there still is potential in this lineup. Um, You know, we, we haven't seen... The ceiling for Alexi Lafreniere. We haven't seen the ceiling for Capo Caco, although he is heating up. So there's still potential in this lineup that is yet to be unlocked. And it's going to be, you know, a longer term thing because you do have the Panarins and Zabanajads and Stroms that can carry the weight up front. So, you know, the youngsters haven't been pressed into service necessarily, but, you know, we know... Uh, what kind of potential they have just from their draft pedigree. So I think this is a team where, you know, they're, they're probably a playoff team. Maybe they can win a round. Maybe this is a year where they kind of learn some playoff lessons. But I think they're on the right track. And, you know, I, I think using the term, have they turned the corner? I, I think they have. I think they're in a good space now. Uh, still work to do, but I, I think they're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, next question is from I am Iron Kaniac. And... Iron Kaniac wants to know what or who do you think could be the first NHL coach to try the tactic of pulling the goalie in three on three overtime? Is there any reason why it wouldn't work in the NHL? So it's reference to Sergei Fedorov making that move in the KHL. Shout out to Sergei Fedorov, by the way, for his unbelievably sexy gif that's been that's been circulating the last couple of days of him smoldering when he's being introduced at the All-Star game. Yeah. a boy, Sergei. Uh, but here's the thing. I am Iron Kaniac. I actually That's a great name. I, great name, yes. I forgot about this, but I just was looking into it. There's a rule that 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 really deters teams from doing it in the NHL. I legitimately forgot this rule existed. I'll read it to you. Regular season dash extra attack attacker. A team shall be allowed to pull its goalkeeper in favor of an additional skater in the overtime period. However, should that team lose the game during the time in which the goalkeeper has been removed, it would forfeit the automatic point gained in the tie at the end of regulation play, except if the goalkeeper has been removed at the call of a delayed penalty against the other team. I totally forgot about that because it just hasn't come up. So you lose. You lose. You don't get a loser point if you pull your goalie in three-on-three in the NHL. That is in the current rule book, which I double-checked this Mm -hmm. morning. So that is why we're not seeing it in the NHL. Doesn't mean you can't do it. Because if you want to take that risk, maybe you really need two points, not one, at the end of the season. Yeah. But there's a major reason why we don't see it. Do you agree? Do you think the team should still do it anyways? Well, I mean, that's a pretty good deterrent. But I would say the way that three-on-three overtime has evolved in the NHL, you do get a lot of plays where a team will get possession and really kind of set things up. So, you know, I could, I could see a scenario where a defenseman gets the puck behind his own net, and they say, goalie, take off, we get the extra attacker. Then you've essentially got a four-on-three power play because you have so much open ice there to get the puck you know, into the opponent's zone and to have possession. So you know what? I mean, if a team is you know, tied for a playoff spot or one point out, maybe it's worth the risk. And uh, I, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of a coach that would necessarily 
be that gutsy, but I mean, I could I could see it happening if you, if it was a do or die situation. I mean, might as well do it. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. We're already at the rapid fire game. I think we're humming along. This has been a quick podcast. I don't know if Jared Bednar was coaching us before. We're playing fast. That's right. We're playing fast with the puck on our stick today. So I'm guessing this is going to clock in as a shorter episode, just the way the cookie crumbled. We're going to finish it off with rapid fire, okay? Let's do it. I am the host of rapid fire today. So we've been talking a lot about Bruce Boudreaux. His nickname is very known, Gabby. Yep. My first question for you is, what is your nickname? Your most common nickname in life so far? Um, I have two. One is Michigan, uh, because a lot of my friends think I have an American accent. And uh, the other is Doc, uh, after Dr. Jack Ryan from the uh, Tom Clancy novels. Shout out to Alan, great family friend who calls me Doc. All right. It's weird. See, I do think you have an American accent, but it's California. It's not Michigan. Yeah, I know. You don't, like, right there. Yeah, I know. I yeah. know. I'm Ryan Kennedy. That's hey. right. Which one of us is talking? It's not. It's not Michigan. It's true, it's but not. I do say pop, which is Michigan. Okay. So. Okay. Uh, I have a weird nickname, uh, Lance Del Vecchio. I have a my best friend. He he has always created strange nicknames that make no sense for me. But Lance Del Vecchio is my alternate personality. Whenever I do something great, it's yeah. not Matt Larkin. So even when we were like playing hockey as kids and stuff. Like if I had a great game, I scored a hat trick. It wasn't Matt Larkin. It was Lance Del Vecchio. Gotcha. Scored the hat trick. Right. So. Anything good that I like? If I'm, if I'm having a good podcast today, if people think I've done well on the show, it wasn't me. It was Lance Del Vecchio. There you go. But if I didn't do well, like if that bit with the Oilers it bombs and I, you know, the Oilers fans get really mad at me, then it was a Matt Larkin episode. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is the greatest player breakout that you correctly predicted that you can hang your hat on? You're most proud of. The one I'm most proud of is Anthony Sorelli because it goes back to his draft year. In Oshawa, the first time I saw him live, you know, he he wasn't on any draft list that I had seen, but this kid just kept making plays and he was on the puck constantly. And I started, you know, I started asking around and and scouts were like, yeah, kind of interesting. And then that year, uh, Oshawa went to the Memorial Cup final. Uh, I wrote about Sorelli uh, a few days before the final saying, you know, this this kid could be something for the Mm -hmm, draft. mm -hmm. He scored both goals in the final, including the overtime winner over Dreisaitl's Kelowna Rockets. And, uh, you know, Tampa Bay drafts him. The rest is history. Uh, he's become a super effective player. I, I will say that's the one player that I saw early where I was like, that, that kid, you know. And he wasn't drafted in the OHL. Hmm. He was a free agent from the Oshawa Generals. They, they brought him to camp and signed him there. Um, so it was a really intriguing story to me. I, I saw a player with potential. That's the one I always hang my hat on. That's a good one. Um, I'm going to say, and you have to bear with me on this one, I'm going to say Kirill Kaprizov. Or Kaprizov. Uh, obviously, he's a big star now when they're called the trophy. But people forget, he wasn't a first-round pick, right? He was a mid-round pick. Yep. And the reason why I'm hanging my hat on that one is the drum I was banging was, he's the best player not in the NHL. He's going to arrive as a finished product and immediately be dominant. Mm. And that was, that was what I was predicting in the last couple of seasons. So I'm, I'm owning that because he was exactly what I said he was going to be. Only because, admittedly... It, the idea wasn't really planted in my head. I did a lot of work on him and talked to people that had worked with him or scouts or whatever. So I was sort of, it was one scout. I think I've said it before. He said he was Tarasenko's body, Marshan's intelligence, and Panarin's hands or mm-hmm. something. So I was like, okay, this guy's going to be amazing. So he's going to arrive and be immediately dominant. Um, okay, Steven, you're going to pipe in on this one. Don't worry. I'm going to give you your <laughs> chance, okay? So you'll get your chance to answer this one. Okay, so Spider-Man... No Way Home is coming out December 17th. I want to know which 
portrayal of a Spider-Man movie villain is your favorite to date? Ooh, okay. Spider-Man movie villain. You know, I'm going to go right back to the start and go with Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin. Uh, I think Willem Dafoe always does a good job in his roles, and Green Goblin is such a, you know, crucial Spider-Man villain uh, that... I think that's the one that resonates the most with me. Okay. Steven is so excited he just got up and he's walking like toward the camera. He's right behind the camera now. Okay, Steven, here's your chance. I want to say the current Venom, but he hasn't been in a Spider-Man movie yet, so mm-hmm. I'm going to go with, with Sandman. I just mm. like, first off, how they did the animation for that at that time I thought was pretty cool. And there was an actual emotional storyline. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, they're, like it's a, kind of a nice way of looking at the character. But Green Goblin, amazing. Shout out okay. to Lowell from Wings. Yes. playing Sandman. Thomas Hayden Church, yes. also from the movie Sideways. <laughs> Last movie, I saw him with my mom in the theater. Me and my mom hitting up Sideways. Nice. Never Paul saw him. I don't care about Pretty wine. good. <laughs> uh, it's funny. I thought someone was going to take the low-hanging fruit and say Alfred Molina as Dr. Octopus. That was, was my second. He was great. Yeah. He was great. Uh, but I think he's just such a good actor. He was almost like too good. So I think mm. for the tone of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, uh, my pick is also Willem Dafoe because he, ha- you could tell he was just having a great time. Yeah. He was delightful. He chewed the scenery. Mm. I think it really fit the tone of the movie. So Willem Dafoe is also my pick. Uh, also shout out to Reese, Reese Evans in Amazing Spider-Man as the lizard, Dr. Kirk Connors. Mm. Underrated performance. The movie is just okay, but I thought he was really good as the lizard. Who's the worst? Well, it's obviously well. You know what? Okay, you could say Topher Grace, but I'm gonna I'm gonna oh. spare Topher Grace and say James Franco in Spider-Man Three with his the stupid amnesia plot line and just uh. I think Franco is pretty bad in Spider-Man Three. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to pick other Green Goblin. That one was terrible from Amazing Spider-Man Two. Oh in, yeah, he's in for like thirty seconds. I forgot. Yeah, Dane DeHaan. Ah, okay. No relation I, to Calvin. I don't remember his name. That's how. Yeah, I forgot about him. I haven't seen enough of the later Spider Spider-Man movies to 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 care, but I will say that Alfred Molina had the best uh, short in Coffee and Cigarettes by Jim Jarmusch. Him and Steve Coogan, with Steve Coogan just being the awful character that he is so good at playing. All right, yeah, Jim Jar- Jim Jarmusch. I'm a fan. Okay, what is the most overrated statistic in hockey? And you can't say plus minus. That's already been established. You know, it's funny because there's been a lot of chatter about this on Twitter lately that a lot of people say wins. Uh, I, I guess more so in terms of goalies. Uh, although ultimately, you know, the point is to win the game. But if you're looking at it, a goaltender's effectiveness, you know, wins can be seen as a team stat. So because I'm not much of a stats aficionado, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go with wins because I know that's part of the current uh, conversation online. Okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Edmonton. I'm going to go after you again here, okay? Blocked shots is my answer. Yeah. Chris Russell being honored as the all-time shot block leader. I'm sorry, Chris Russell, but you never have the puck. The puck's flying at you all the time because the other team has it. You're getting pelted with pucks all the time. That's why you have so many blocks. And I think that's common for a lot of players that lead the league in blocks. It's just that means you don't have it. Right. And I, I have to double check, but I've seen a lot of seasons in the past where the team that lead the, led the league in blocks actually didn't have a good season. Mm. And same with hits. Sometimes if you're throwing a lot of hits is because you're trying to get the puck off the other team that has the puck. So block shots is my pick. Okay. I'll say, I'll say wins. It's so weird that Cam Ward. It, it feels weird that Cam Ward is twenty fifth all time in wins. Wow. It feels like he was so mediocre for like a lot of his wow. career. 
It felt like he was just such an average goalie. He was never like a top guy. 25th. 25th in wins. A lot of starts, behind though. Abby, but Abby Willens behind him. We've got Worsley, Sean Burt, Kiprasov, Bobrovsky, Rask. That's crazy. Wow, Cam Ward. Who knew? I guess because he was just there so long. Yeah, established as the, as the starter. Um, so I'm not assuming that everyone who listens to the show celebrates Christmas, but I think we can all agree we hear a lot of Christmas songs this time of year, wherever mm. you are, if you're in the supermarket, whatever it is. So I want to give. I want you to give me your top three Christmas songs. Oh, I can't go three. I hate Christmas. I, I hate like I was at the grocery store the other day. You not wait? Are you saying you hate Christmas or Christmas just, songs? Okay, okay. Yeah, Christmas songs. Uh, I just it's the same ones every year. Um, I like Feliz Navidad. Uh, that's pretty much it. Okay. Uh, should I tell a Feliz Navidad story? There's a weird <laughs> in university. I was on a bus uh, with a bunch of people going to a bar, and a buddy of mine started. Or there was a guy with a guitar. He That's was never play, a good sign. He was playing, and my buddy got him to play Feliz Navidad, and, and my, my friend took a cup and started collecting money for, for the guy. It was really cool. Everyone on the bus was singing Feliz Navidad. Then at the end, my buddy gave the cup back to the guy, and the, instead of saying thank you, the guy grabbed my friend's hand and started aggressively licking his fingers out of nowhere. It was like, whoa, okay. Move. Yeah. Sidebar. Uh, okay, my top three. I would say, Oh Holy Night, if you really want this sort of powerful church ballad, just it sounds great. Uh, also, maybe the most poignant scene in Home Alone. It's Kevin and True. and Old Man Marley in the church talking. Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas. It's a banger. Let's just acknowledge that. It's, it's a banger. ubiquitous. Yes. And then maybe Jingle Bell Rock. Just I like the tone. It's fun. But I think Mariah, All I Want for Christmas, is that can get you fired up, I think, even if you don't like Christmas <laughs> music. All righty. Last question. So this has to predate your hockey news career. Okay. What is your favorite World Junior Championship experience as a fan? Oh, okay. So, I mean, predating my time at the Hockey News, I would go with John Slaney's goal for Canada because that was back when the tournament was that great sort of holiday. You know, it's like not only is it Christmas holidays, but there's hockey and it's often at weird hours, which is super fun. And that was the first you know, goal I remember where it's like, wow, like this is such a great tournament, you know, it's Canada versus Russia. So John Slaney was the first one for me. Good pick. And I'm going to answer obviously as well through the lens of cheering for Canada, which of course I did as a Canadian growing up. Um, to me, it was 2005, the greatest world junior team of all time. It was loaded Crosby, Bergeron, Getzlaff, Carter, Perry, on and on and on. But also we were so starved for it because that was during the 0405 lockout. We had nothing exciting, high stakes to cheer for in terms of NHL hockey. It was the best thing we could get. And you had an NHL player in Bergeron who had already been in the league as the youngest player in the league. So that was so exciting. And it also was redemption after the horrible heartbreak the year before with the own goal with Marc-Andre Fleury, Braden Coburn, right? So it checked a couple boxes. It was redemption for Canada, and it was just a tournament we craved. And it was arguably the best team the tournament's ever ever had so that would be my pick that is the end of rapid fire thank you for participating thank you for jumping in with a spider-man answer steven we hope you enjoyed the podcast we'll be back next week thank you for watching and listening sorry again oilers fans for poking you (laughs) 